Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm back again, back in the evil night and you're waiting. Doomed by the living dead, flames are rising, can't you see you're dying? The wolves are howling, a baby's cry in the distance, cold winds blowing. In the dead of night, flames are rising. Can't you see you're dying? Doomed by the living dead, my friends. Welcome to episode 115. 115. God damn it, Janet. 115 of Agitators Anonymous. I am Alan Averill, your hostess with the leastest. And this is your Friday's episode of Agitators Anonymous. Yes, indeed. And today I'm going to be talking about taste. The idea of good and bad taste and how this might or might not be relevant to you, to the things you listen to, to the bands you watch at festivals, partly inspired by my weekend at Hellfest and also just other things that we've all been thinking about for years, especially if you're on the side of the fence that belongs to the the obsessive, the elitist, the fanatical, the collector, all of these kind of things. Do you have the right to judge those who are casual about their interactions with, for example, art or music. The show is sponsored by MetalBlade.com. If you're in North America, use the promo code ALAN to get 10% off your order. You could order the Merciful Fate album from which I took those opening lyrics, which from the original Nuns Have No Fun, 12-inch, no less, no less, I tell you indeed, and a returning sponsor, Hate Couture, H-A-T-E-C-O-U-T-U-R-E, 616.com slash. Use the promo code A-L-A-N to get free shipping, which is worth quite a lot. There will be links to both of those um, underneath in the description, whether it's on your podcast provider or if you're watching on the YouTube. Um, I've restarted my Call from the Grave um, YouTube series. Um, I did Morbid Angel this week, which seems to be doing all right. People are pretty um, positive about that. So you can go over there and take a look. Just put in Alan Averill 
Um, same thing with Patreon.com. If you want to sponsor the show for as little as, I don't know, one of your Earth dollars for as long as they exist, for as long as the Federal Reserve has got that one, has got you covered, you can go and um, follow that for, well, not very much for a month, etc., etc. So, my... Episode 115 is a bit of a, you know, discussion on taste. There's lots of things politically going on and lots of people have been asking me about that, wanting me to talk about politics again, and maybe next week I will. But um, I get the impression some people want me to talk about it because some people um, anticipate being annoyed at what I'm saying. So it's like they're almost trying to bait you or troll you. But, you know, you don't have to have an opinion about everything. Um, And if your opinion is yet to be formed, yet to be thought of, it's better to keep it to yourself. Um, and mull it over, go through the various sides of the argument, especially when it comes to something um, like what people are asking me specifically about Roe v. Wade, about American um, Supreme Court politics, um, all that kind of stuff about gender, etc. And I honestly feel sometimes it's really that um, some people have a look around the scene that surrounds them, around the cultural bubble that they live in and go, I want somebody to say something that I can give out to them about. Well, you know what? Not today, my friends. Not today. Anyway, so the question of taste, the question of taste. Um, and is it right to judge? Is it right to judge? That's what today's podcast is about. Um, you'll excuse my squeaky chair there in the background, so to say. Um, there's an interesting series on Channel 4. Um, this is a English TV uh, station. I guess they started in the early 1980s. I suppose they were the countercultural, um, I suppose, idea to the traditional BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. Channel 4 sort of started out as a bit of a more of an arty, um, I won't say lefty, but vaguely um, countercultural TV channel. Um, in opposition to the uh, more traditional BBC in the UK. Anyway, um, the BBC being, I guess, the the once the bastion of impartial social documentation, and now, well, a little less so. But that's for another podcast. But a series about they made a series about taste and class. It's presented by Grayson Perry. Now, that may be a very odd reference point for a heavy metal. Uh, um, podcast fundamentally but Grayson Perry I guess is in his 60s now he's an interesting character no doubt let's say an elderly cross-dressing gentleman a traditional transvestite something of a provocateur an artist an all-around general sort of shitster I suppose you could say um, and quite engaging righteously so I do find his mannerisms sometimes vaguely irritating but yet he's eminently watchable And this series was, um, he presented a three-part series about taste and class um, and what they say about us as people. Um, It's a couple of years ago, so maybe it hasn't been completely um, subsumed by the cultural maelstrom of the culture wars, but it's definitely worth going back to find if you can. I think Channel 4 have a watch-on-demand thing. But let's say it like this on a simple level. The things we like. Um, we, what we aspire to, the ornaments of life we surround ourselves with. Um, what do they say about us? What do they say about our social standing? Um, I've often said in the podcast that I think class is still the most important thing, and most, most relevant thing um, in today's culture wars, in today's society. Um, it's not really something people want to talk about anymore because it's a little bit more difficult to define. But I think class 
for example, is behind everything from, let's say, lockdown even, our, our attitude to lockdown and the working class people who wanted to get out and work with their hands as opposed to the pyjama party who were able to stay inside and make their living from um, the gig economy online, etc. This is a division of class. This is the new tech class versus the old analog class, if you wish to look at it like that. And you can apply that kind of theory to pretty much everything. And so I'm at Hellfest watching Five Finger Death Punch trying to apply this theory to the music that is in front of me. And it made me think of this um, series, this, you know, oddly referenced series about class. And um, it's about the ornaments of life, as I said, we surround ourselves with. What kind of paintings you have on the wall, um, which is the main thematic, as Grayson Perry himself is an artist, so that's kind of what he's discussing. But what, what constitutes taste? Do upper class people have better taste? What, in this circumstance, if we relate it to music, what does upper class represent? Now, I'm not sure we can apply the same class theories to music, but certainly we can apply um, the concept of a casual um, and a committed listener, if you want, something like this. Um, but who is, who is in a position to judge what that even means? Why is a painting from a local pound shop or a local shop on the wall of a working class family judged to be tat. Tat is a strange word. I suppose it means tatty um, or something of a working class cliche. You know the kind of things that I mean, especially if you're of a certain age and you've grown up watching sitcoms, maybe from the 80s and the 70s, which are generally about working class families. Um, well, of course, this is your taste. And maybe somebody with enough money um, has, of course, uh, the ability to buy things which are viewed as um, uh, higher art or, you know, had to have better taste. But anyway, Mr. Perry takes us from um, the homes of the working class people, the local football team, um, just sort of general working class situations and areas all the way to the homes of the very rich who have paintings worth hundreds of thousands, if not millions on the wall. And we take a journey through much of the eccentricity, which may be a singularly English upper class phenomenon, although I'm not quite convinced of that, um, but takes us on a journey to the upper class um, and go through those things via middle class. Um, you know, you know, you're probably you're probably middle class out there listening. Um, it is you who the Davos set are trying to squeeze and destroy, my friends. But that's again for however many of the podcasts I've done. 115. God damn it. Anyway, what he asks in this in this series is, who are we to judge what is taste and the other tasteless? Um, it's a very interesting question. And what and what it is, um, <clears throat> I suppose it also means what is that? What is it worth to the people who own such an object? Um, his conclusions are kind of, well, complex, but thought provoking. What is low art and what is high art? Um, or do we judge something purely based on its meaning to the people who own it? I, what is your emotional attachment to something? And does that um, devalue or, you know, value the art? I mean, if we're talking about it in musical terms, maybe, um, maybe you are a really big fan of prog rock because you really appreciate the musicianship. But does this give you the atavistic, primal, emotional reaction of aggression, say, or that violent urge that something simplistic 
um, might run through you when you hear, I don't know, Venom, Hellhammer, Misfits, Black Flag. Um, so maybe there are different ways we react to things. Is jazz an intellectual exercise? Is it an emotional exercise? I would say probably both. I mean, I don't know enough about it quite to to judge, but for sure, listening to Miles Davis, this can be both. Um, but I do know people who are into music, it would seem purely for the musicianship, who seem abstracted from the uh, the primal urge of music. And maybe this is somehow relevant to this conversation about um, taste and art. On those terms, then this would clearly mean in musical terms that mainstream pop music made for 11-year-olds um, is judged on the same merit as Opeth. I use them as an example because they were um, also playing at Hellfest earlier on that day on the stage that you can view from the new sort of balcony view bar. Um, and is that right? Is that proper? One thing I would say is that I think intent matters. Um, and this may be because I am, well, at least I lay claim to being a musician and the intent of your creativity, um, the artistic well from which it is or is not drawn from. Um, and this is sort of something maybe some people don't care about it. They just want a good tune. They want something that emotionally um, sort of tickles them on the very surface level. Tickle. Yes, I use the word tickle for the first time in the podcast. Um, they want, they, they're not interested in um, digging beneath the surface to discover if there's some deeper artistic or emotional meaning. They just want a good summer tune. But do we judge those things similarly? Um, I would say not, but let's have a look at it. Surely intent matters. Paying the dues, um, paying your time, putting in the effort, putting the hours in, the work, this does matter. Um, not that you don't put the hours into crafting a simplistic pop song, but I even think pop has changed over the years. But that said, we've all seen and heard about modern art that's merely a line across a page, a splash of colour that could have been made in 30 seconds. And then, um, you know, if you're lucky enough, you've stood in Florence and gazed up at the painting, the painted ceiling of a Renaissance chapel and thought, well, one is clearly high art and one is, well, something that we could all make. But is that, surely that's the point of that blur of that flash of colour um, across a page, uh, maybe a David Hockney or something, if I've not um, referenced the wrong style of artist in my in my relative ignorance. Um, but one is questioning the um, the integrity of the of our ancient of our sort of old fashioned archaic, they would say, um, views on what is high art, because hey look, you could make this, you could get a page on the floor and throw uh, paint at it. But what does, it, what does that mean? What is the point? Does the fact that something takes skill make it more worthy? Mm, possibly, yes. I would recommend the series. It's certainly thought-provoking and made me question my relationship to taste. Um, maybe something can be high art and another thing can be low art, but the people who put emotional worth into it, um, who can judge their taste? Well... I'm not so sure. Again, I kind of sit on the fence with this or rather maybe just get off the fence to one particular side. But certainly in the course of the series, Perry seems to find that the working class people will seem to have more of an emotional investment in the pieces of art that they surround themselves with compared to the financial component and investment capacity of the upper class to judge a piece of art on financial terms or that they own it. So therefore, ipso facto, 
I have, well, that's incredibly pretentious, but you know what I mean. I have paid X amount for this. So that is its artistic worth. Um, but to judge a piece of art, um, to judge this piece of art on its own merit. So maybe on those terms, the working class reaction to what we call low art is truer, or is it? This is how it seems. But the creator of the work of high art is in essence more true on some level um, than a mass-produced piece image from a charity shop. You know the kind of things that I mean. Um, I mean, I would say it has to be, or else, I mean, what really does art mean? I suppose that was part of the deconstruction of art that came through modern contemporary art that could just be, you know, like a, a brown line across a pink canvas or something like this. The paradox being that maybe the working class reaction is is pure by the creative process um, of the Sistine Chapel or Picasso or Dali. And the reaction, the atti- this sort of simplistic reaction is, is it, could, it, could you say it's pure? Maybe the wrong people own the wrong stuff. I'm not sure. But this also comes down to what we are drawn to, what attracts us. It's complete. It's complex, certainly. So, having... Um, confused you all for the opening 10 minutes, 15 minutes of the podcast, what I am trying to get to is music and taste within music. Because I am standing at Hellfest watching Five Finger Death Punch. Um, And I have many of these thoughts going through my head. This is one of the most critically maligned metal band of modern times. Um, It's not quite a Nickelback, Nickelback, Nickelback. It's not quite a Nickelback. It's not quite a Creed. Um, But they are definitely one of the most, um, I guess, looked down upon kind of metal bands by, um, you know, critically um, when it comes to reviews, when it comes to, let's say, uh, the people who consider themselves to be of um, higher art uh, within heavy metal. But they're playing to an audience of about 40,000 people at Hellfest. The first weekend's headliners left for me, something to be desired. I didn't really like any of the bands. I'm not really into Deftones or Volbeat or whatever. But I watched 30 minutes of the set of Five Finger Death Punch and it left me really perplexed. Um, And it made me wonder, are we, and I put we as in, you know, the underground, the committed, the obsessives, the fanatics, the collectors, um, the people who have um, put decades of work um, who have the dirt of uh, musical obsessiveness under their fingernails, who are committed to the cause, who are willing to die on that hill, are we right to be able to judge such a band as awful? Or is it a question of taste? Or am I a confirmed metal snob, a confirmed metal elitist, an artist, a creator of music, an asshole, really, a confirmed... Um, and I accept the levels of assholeness that go with that statement. Is that a right word? Probably not. Um, Sorry, Mr. Fry. Who am I to judge what seems to bring so many people a very simple happiness? It's a complex question to make me think about issues of taste and class. I mean, they sound to my ears kind of awful, but let's examine why. Let's tackle it chapter by chapter, and I'll try to be objective. Give the band and their fans some leeway, some rope, the benefit of the doubt, but also be critical of what they represent um, at the same time and try and put both sides of the debate. Bear with me. Now, chapter one is that I make no bones about the fact that the mainstream metal bands of the last 10 or 20 or even 25 years, let's say since the mid-90s, are for me not comparable to the 70s and 80s. If you 
were given Bullet for My Valentine and I was given Judas Priest. Look, we both know which is a better band in their heyday, in their pomp. Um, Of course, this has something to do with my personal taste, my age, when I came into um, the scene, when I came into heavy metal. But, and I think we can all accept that um, society has gotten or has become more dumbed down, a bit more transient and throwaway. And so has mainstream music. And I don't think anyone could really argue with that. Even pop fans, pop fans must wonder if you compare pop music from 1986 to right now, compare AHA to some of the hypersexualized music made for 11-year-olds at the top of the charts, um, or the sort of childishness, the innate um, sort of, um, well, childishness is the right word of the music Billie Eilish makes. It's It's simplicity and we can see a cultural shift when i was growing up i got master of puppets which i think we can all agree is a masterpiece yet for a 12 or 13 or 14 year old now what is the equivalent what has been the equivalent for the last 10 20 uh 25 years is it really trivium is it really bullet for my valentine apologies to bullet for my valentine they just pop into my head as one of those names or objectively um is it for a kid now five finger death punch and let's be metal fans, let's be music fans. Is the new Five Finger Death Punch album objectively as good as Master of Puppets? I mean, I think the answer is of course not, but let's try and discuss why that might be. As an underground guy, I feel all the best music being made outside the mainstream now is in the underground. And that's because of many cultural shifts and changes. But I think that for 10 or 20 years, let's say the post-new metal world, really forced us different kind of music um, out into the mainstream. And if you look at the kind of natural successors to the priests, to the maidens, all those kind of bands, um, you know, they are, they are, it would seem, the Nickelbacks, the Creeds, the um, Shinedowns. I only picked their name again as I walked by their uh, wardrobe at Hellfest full of um, Hawaiian shirts and all sorts of stuff. And I just thought... I'd rather be walking by Rob Halford's wardrobe, so to speak, pun intended. Um, or just go to maybe the Download Festival and just look at, you know, take away the big, big, the, the elder statesman, the kisses, and just look at who is headlining. Um, and I'm watching Five Finger Death Punch now, and I think to myself, really? So what's changed? Certainly the cultural relevance of rock music has changed. Um, or is it also now I've spent 30-odd years of... Uh, playing music and I have baggage with me and most of that spent being a musician so you judge music more harshly not only with age and the role that naturally plays in your personal development but also as a musician you respect the bands who take the harder more complex path and that may not mean musically um, complex or harder but the road less traveled um, not complex as I said as in musically complex because certainly Five Finger Death Punch are all really good musicians you can see that clearly when you watch them and there's no doubt about that but bands whose intent seems pure but increasingly it feels like those bands are rewarded less and less at a festival like Hellfest unless you're a legacy old old band a priest or a megadeth as I said if you are let's say a tasteful (laughs) there you go there's the word band, the chances of you being on the main stage are rather slim, unless you've been going for 20 plus, 25 years. As those are the bands that don't have mass appeal. Sure, look, Alcest, great band, amazing band. 
And they do very well in 2022, but their place on the main stage is taken by the aforementioned Shine Down in their Hawaiian shirts or um, all these See You Next Tuesday kind of bands with triple barrel names who do the whoa, 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 back and forward um, kind of simplistic songwriting stuff. But in this case, the place of a Judas Priest or whoever, I'm unlucky enough to be standing in front of Five Finger Death Punch. And I'm just thinking to myself, I, I end up watching them longer than I would. Some, you know, it's a very di- strange thing when you've seen almost every band and you spend your life at festivals. You do become a bit numb. numb. There is a, t- a kind of numbness to being, okay, I'm in the crowd again watching, uh, except for the seventh time or whatever. And of course, a little bit of the sheen and shine is taken off. it. You've got to pick which band, especially if you've had a long day standing around playing yourself, that you're going to stand and watch. Um, but for some reason, I'm. it's kind of like a car crash. I'm drawn to watch Five Finger Death Punch for way longer than I would have thought. I mean, are they just the modern day equivalent to the 1980s, say, for example, Poison or Warrant or, I don't know, Pretty Boy Floyd or something like this? It could be. But, you know, as a cranky old bastard, what's the main criticism somebody like me would level at a band like Five Finger Death Punch? Well, firstly... It certainly feels like the band were put together by committee. That somewhere in a rec- in a record executive um, room, someone went, let's take a little bit of Pantera chunk, sprinkle some black album choruses, um, mix in some Nickelback chorus vibes. Uh, we all have to do the big backing vocals. Um, we'd Let's take a bit of Avenged Sevenfold, a little bit of Creed, big choruses about uplifting overcoming the odds topics you're gonna make it wash away the pain succeed against the odds etc etc every song is kind of like a montage of um you know exactly those things flawed protagonist flawed protagonist sees the light and overcomes the odds songs about friends dying young and meeting the angels um the lyric writing team to look took a look at the most popular mainstream movies the last 20 years saw the thematics and just wrote to order. Um, you know, and that's a cynic, that's a cynical way of looking at it. But these are the sort of very, very, um, you know, surface level sort of um, songwriting themes. They're the songwriting tropes. And you can hear it in the same notation, in the dynamics, in the middle eight. Then, you know, it's as if somebody took a storyboard and went, okay, bass player with wacky beard, check. Uh, kind of post Hot Topic clothing, guitar player with wacky hair, check. Post Anselmo, hard man singer with head tattoos, check. Drummer has his own vibe, sort of affliction t-shirt clothing vibe, check. It looks like, again, the band was sort of designed by committee. Um, And that's the sort of, I guess, that's the obsessive cynic in me um, judging it. You know, it would be the same as if it was Black Veil Brides. I would just go, okay, these guys are like Hot Topic hard rock, all dressed like sort of, um, you know, sort of genderless versions of Nikki Six from 1983. Um, and, you know, Nikki Six took his image from Johnny Thunder. So, you know what? Uh, maybe it's not meant for me. It's obviously meant for 15 or 16 year old girls. But, you know, I will give it to the singer of Five Finger Death Punch. He can sing. God damn it. He can sing and he has a presence and all of them have a presence. But what is, what is he really odd once I began to dig down into Five Finger Death Punch? And some of you who are listening to this who are just turned off the Oath of Black Blood or Fallen Angel of Doom are like, what the fuck are you doing talking about Five Finger Death Punch? Yep, yeah, I know, I know, I get it. But anyway, 
What I find really fascinating about them is they seem to be pure red state. Kind of, I'm, I don't want to use the word redneck, as I don't really li- uh, like that as a sort of pejorative term, but kind of, they have this sort of patriotic um, zeal about them. We are for the troops, Republican rock, designed to appeal somehow to country music mainstream fans, NRA, vibing state fairs. Um, you know, this one's for the veterans, and I've no doubt played shows to veterans. Designed in a back room of a record company somewhere in Texas or created in middle America. Um, we won't call it Trump thrash, although I really like that phrase, uh, trademark. Um, or not trash, but certainly they're they are at odds with much of the music industry right now. And especially the side of it that tweets, <laughs> tweets the most, the Twitterati, uh, the kind of leftist Twitterati. They are completely the opposite. And it does make me kind of grudgingly like them that they must piss off so many people. Um, and they are unapologetic. And, you know, I do like that. When that singer gives everybody the middle finger and goes, we don't give a F what you think, I'm kind of like, yeah, I, I kind of feel that you don't. Um, but are they, you know, as Bill Hicks would say, um, you know, the righteous righteous anger dollar, big dollar, good dollar, etc., etc. Um, all of the above doesn't bother me. This is their views, their edge. And certainly, as I stated before, if conservatism is the new punk rock, then Five Finger Death Punch are certainly... They are in the game of punk rock. They ask, anyone like hockey? Hockey, as in ice hockey, not field hockey, darlings, but ice hockey. Um, they throw some five-finger death punch hockey jerseys into the crowd. Okay. Um, they focus on some tiny kid in the front of the crowd. Um, good parenting, but by the way, bring your kid to go and see a live band. Good parenting. Um, and the singer gives him a five-finger death punch baseball bat. A baseball bat, yes. Um, it looks great on the big screen. It's a, it's a, almost like um, a political moment. It has elements of a politician kisses baby about it, you know. And it, the big screens are there beside Hellfest and everyone, you know, cheers and applauds. The kid bursts into tears. And if you were that kid, you will remember that forever. Um, it's, you know, it's a bigger thing than catching a, a plectrum thrown out to you by Dave Mustaine or something or James Hetfield. Um but the kids burst, kid bursts into tears. And if you were that kid, like I said, I nod along to one song. Ah, good riff, good chorus, actually. Got to admit it. And I think to myself, are these guys winning me over? Certainly the singer's anger, and as I said, we don't give a fuckness, seem to be genuine enough. Even if the band looked like they've been sort of dressed by, um, you know, if Ted Nugent's son was a sort of Hot Topic stylist, um, and he or she only had access to a... Uh, you know, sports casual, as I said, sort of sports casual hot topic um, for middle-aged men. Um, because, you know, it's it's that kind of same thing as that band. Um, well, I can't remember the name. They were a new metal band in the post in the wake of Corn and all that kind of stuff who wore silver paint on their faces and spiky hair and, you know, red face paint and stuff. And for many of those musicians who capitalized on new metal once, you know, post 96, 97, many of them were older and they were heavy metal musicians from the 80s who just went, oh, right, okay, so we down tune and go gong, 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 gong. And so wearing, you know, crazy masks or crazy face paint or whatever kind of hid the fact that they were um, uh, quite a bit older. As I said, I ended up drinking one time with the, the Rev, uh, the drummer of Avenged Sevenfold, who was certainly 
uh, way older than um, <clears throat> he was supposed to let on by his hair and his whatever else. Else, anyway. Point is, very often these seem like middle-aged men um, who are dressed up to appeal uh, to young men. Yeah, there's my there's my modern um, cultural hot take for you right there. But Five Finger, Five Finger, Five Finger, even Five Finger Death Punch are a band who sold millions of albums, millions in the US. They have a couple of albums that are like seven hundred fifty thousand physical copies to Middle America, who still go out and buy physical copy. They know their audience. They aren't really, um, they don't really care about whether the, um, you know, music, metal music blogs um, that are coming out of New York or L.A. really give a shit about them. And the truth is, just like politics, once you step outside the most vocal and critical Twitter minority who seem to shape culture superficially, this is what most people like. Five finger deaths, punch messages, uncomplicated and generally unburdened by nuance or context. And to be fair them, fair to them, um, I think many of the things they are concerned about are, if we come back to class and taste, kind of what working class people would, um, you know, be concerned about. There's religious elements. There's songs about, um, you know, a, a dying friend who went to visit the angels. Most still a lot of working class class people are religious. There's songs about, as I said, overcoming the odds. There's songs about working hard. There's songs for the troops. And these are general concerns of working class people, I think, across America and probably you would find across most of Eastern Europe, at least. Um, and, you know, let's say most of most working class people. It's just that it's just that the how we call them, the um, the online class have become completely distanced from those people. And so I'm kind of caught between two minds. Is it unfair of me to judge them or fair of me? Um, is it is it some sort of elitist class things, a snobbish thing that I'm going, ugh? I don't know. The singer then appears to don a kind of yellow Guantanamo Bay style outfit with big gloves. I don't really understand what that's about. It goes over my head. Whatever the resonance is there, he points to the sky, sports style. You know, when somebody scores a touchdown, um, points to the ma- the big man upstairs, dedicates a song to a fallen brother. Uh, I don't know, a biker or a soldier. Kind of reminds me of sometimes power metal bands do the same thing. I Earth. Who am I to judge? Well, I'm here. I'm watching. Objectively, the music is low-hanging fruit. Well played, well executed. Yeah, look, there are some killer guitar solos here and there. Um, technically um, gifted, although lacking, um, you know, the, the charisma or character you would have seen from a Michael Ackerfeld a couple of hours before. But, you know, technically good. Uh, lots of sweet picking kind of things. And every now and again, an Iron Maiden twin harmony pops out at you. But the music is generally low-hanging fruit. Well played, well executed. And as I said, the fella can sing. But it feels like it's designed by committee. Uh, it cherry picks the most obvious elements of other huge bands over the last few decades and runs with that. And the audience love it. And, you know, I wonder, was Richie Blackmore standing in a backstage in 1983 somewhere wondering, what the fuck is this dumb band t- Twisted Sister he could hear in the distance with their simple dumb hooks and dumb choruses? Are Five Finger Death Punch merely the Twisted Sister for their generation, only with different clothes on? They could be. And I have Twisted Sister albums in my vinyl collection that I'm looking at right now. Um, Not on all of them, and I wouldn't call them um, one of my favourite bands at all, but they had something. Maybe that's the answer. Certainly, I once stood beside the... Actually, I stood beside the bass player of Twisted Sister at an awards ceremony, and he had a fake beard drawn on. Hmm. And I tried not to stare, uh, as he was about six foot five, and would have killed me. 
Um, but, you know, I got a couple of stares in. However, I look at Five Finger Death Punch and a couple of them do have, um, you know, magician's beards and funny sort of facial hair, which seems to be the preserve of middle-aged uh, metalheads who kind of are starting to lose their hair, which is to, um, at least in the mainstream, I'm looking at you, Kerry King, to have funny uh, facial hair. You know what I mean. I'm going to use a football analogy here. People who follow follow lower division teams and people who just follow players. Maybe that's a good analogy. A world of influencers. And what I mean by that is um, if you are somebody who um, just always kind of follows the superficial, um, I don't kind of necessarily blame kids in a sense because you can only like what's in front of you and maybe that Twisted Sister analogy works. Um and, you know, the overall general infantilism, infantilism of the music industry, like I said, I keep referring to that conversation between Joe Rogan and the guitar player. They're not the guitar player. He says nothing. But the drummer of um, the Black Keys, who just says, well, look, the problem with most of the modern music industry is that it's music designed for 9, 10, 11, 12 year olds. Um, maybe clever music. And you think of those, you know, classic records by live records by Deep Purple, where they all disappear up their own asses and go off into big huge tangents of you know we think of yes we think of elp we think of um we think of all the the prog rock king crimson all that kind of stuff which were really popular genesis etc in the 70s music in the mainstream isn't like that that kind of music really belongs to a completely other generation and you know i mean some of those bands They've not. Uh, there is no doubt the Porcupine Tree on their own right are a very big band, but they're not within the mainstream. Rock isn't. So we, do we? Do we? Is there an element of um, feeling sorry for the fanatic? Really strange Morgoth album that. But can the collective, um, you know, the casual fan, criticize the obsessive? I mean, this is partly why I used to review metal albums. I don't do it anymore, but I I, I used to review metal albums because I thought. And this may sound like really egotistical and a bit um, arrogant, but I need to do this because I understand this band's lineage, whether it's a band new, new world British heavy metal band. Um, I, I need to do this because I know about Dark Star and Mendez Prey and Diamond Head, etc. And maybe I need to take this album out of the hands of some um, impressionable 22 year old who doesn't know those references. Um, and maybe that, you know, as, as a kind of incredible arrogance to it, but it is really it is really about addressing the concept of expertise i suppose and what does that constitute i mean does being a fanatic allow you to consider your opinion worth more modern society um makes such makes such an idea quite a big thing it's quite frowned upon let's be honest unless it's something to do with your biomedical security state um and believing health experts but in general modern culture or the culture wars itself kind of demand that all lived experiences are equal. So my 30 plus years spent down in the trenches of heavy metal are not worth more than a casual festival goer who likes a five finger death punch chorus, but wouldn't know any of the bands um, in any of the side festival stages. Let's be honest, those are the real quote unquote bands often. Or, you know, the bands with musical integrity. And integrity is an important word. And I think that's something that most people don't really apply to this situation. And yet at the same time, you know, people like what they like. Who cares? Who cares? Is a good argument for anything, really. Like, like what you like is, of course, a compelling argument. And I think the same, um, the same conversation exists 
that we had after Five Finger Death Punch amongst the few people who were standing around there, a few other guys from um, other bands. And we were thinking, like, what is the appeal of this? Why do so many people like it? But yet we could grudgingly sort of see why, um, of course, people like it. You know, the big choruses, all the the, the themes, the, the big stage show that you could see why people like it. But yet at the same time, for us, it was still kind of vaguely troubling. And I was sure the same conversation exists at festivals all across the world that are um, involving any subculture. Um, you know, there are no doubt, you know, whether it's reggae, whether it's grime, whether it's dub, whether it's ska, punk, indie, whatever, there are always the Waldorf and Statler, uh, you know, grumpy old dude standing in the corner going, I'm not sure about the integrity of X person on the stage now. Do they know? Do they know all those old Northern Soul singles, um, all the two-tone, all the Spartan record stuff? Um, or are they just playing some awful, um, you know, white boy reggae? I don't know. Is it wrong to judge someone who likes the odd new folk song? I don't know, but doesn't know stuff from the 70s. Maybe they just don't have the goddamn time. But this is the nature of things. The lowest common denominator usually rules. And most regular people just don't have the time and attention to devote to digging beneath the surface. Um, you know, they, they want to go to a festival, have a good time. They want to be entertained. They, you know, want to hear an uplifting chorus. And certainly Five Finger Death Punch provides all of those things. And I'm not sure I can blame them. As I said before, the worth and value of music in society. I mean, look, it's been demeaned for decades. So... So the worth of the so-called elitist point of view maybe seems to hold less validity these days. Or am I or am I just being elitist? Anyway, let's bring it all home. At the end of the Channel 4 documentary, Grayson makes the claim, there is no such thing really as good and bad taste. Um, and I think, can I apply the same to music? Um, if taste simply means who cares what you like, on some kind of base anti-intellectual, even anti-musical level, I could I could agree on a very basic level. I mean, who does really care? Fuck you, I like this band. Don't try and look down on me, etc., etc. Yeah, it's a perfectly reasonable answer. Or, you know, or rather, if someone calls you out for your guilty pleasures, should you acknowledge them or defend them or just not bother and go, yeah, so what? I like that, whatever that is. But surely there is a different... A difference between the songwriting craft of Steely Dan and the childish musings of modern pop music, despite theoretically both being called pop, or is that a stretch? Do we really consider Pink Floyd, you know, pick set controls to the heart of the sun, no different to wet ass pussy? It's all just music after all. Yet, while I get the argument, I kind of can't agree. I have to get down off the fence and stand, although quite near the fence, clearly on the side demarked, musical obsessive, elitists, completist, collector, fan, actual fan, not casual listener. Um, and are we saying that the casual interaction is the same for as for the obsessive? I watched The Cure the last time in Dublin. They played for about two and a half hours, maybe even a little bit more. And for the last 30, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, they left the audience breathless with hit after hit. No... No band really can manage to do that like The Cure, make the most dirgy, dark stuff, the most bright and breezy pop music and have the same fan love it. But for the opening one and a half, one hour 40, it was quite dark and challenging. There were songs from pornography. Um, and most of the middle-aged, um, you know, women in attendance waiting for Love Cats, um, that's the truth, sat down the back drinking in the quite frankly inclement and rather windy and cold weather. Um, am I more of a Cure fan than them for knowing the songs that were from Blood Flowers, 
I don't know. I guess I guess I kind of am. So maybe I've answered my own question. But we both danced the same way to pictures of you. And we were both moved close to tears by Love Song, which I have to say is maybe the greatest long song, love song ever written. Yep, come at me. But we were both there in the field sharing live communion with The Cure. And we all danced together. And, you know, maybe that's the most important thing. I don't know. So maybe that's what it is. Um, for it not to be a crowd of elitists and in-crowd obsessive, you need the people who come down for the hits. You need the people who come to an Electric Wizard show who've never listened to Black Sabbath or don't know Johnny Blade or don't know, you know, the B-side of Never Say Die, who are just attracted by the imagery and a chance to dress up in some 70s occult rock clubber. And why not? And why not? But, you know, from the other side of that, the casuals have to concede when pushed that they aren't in the realm of the obsessive and maybe sometimes have to step out of the discussion or step out from the debate and go, well, you know, I get it. I get it. Um, they may have to step down from what the online modern world tells them, that every opinion is equally as valid as everyone else's at all times. I mean, look, if you want the football analogy to take us home into the final stretch, into the last five minutes, we're in stoppage time. Um, I'm a Manchester United fan since 1983. Yeah, I'm going to know that's probably going to get me some unfollows. I watch and I play football. I go to the odd game. But compared to someone who goes home and away, follows a lower division team who are never going to win, rain and wind, travels to stand in the cold till all hours to follow the team, I hold my hand up and say, I ain't the same level of football fan as you. And if you just watch highlights and you just follow Ronaldo, then you're even lower down the rung than me. So... On those terms, and when it comes to underground metal, underground music, um, when it comes to music, yeah, I'm I'm the guy home and away, uh, trenches, cold, wind and rain chap. And you've put decades into that. So for a casual music fan, they kind of have to concede that sometimes. So I guess, as with most of the podcasts, there is the fact that it sits in the grey area. Um but you know what? We can all celebrate a goal together. We can all jump up and down in the pub and celebrate Ireland scoring a goal. Even if you only watch Ireland whenever they uh, have a good team, you know what? No problem. So what am I saying? Like what you like. Don't give a fuck. But you know, we should be aware of stepping in the ring with the fanatic. Cultural relativism, which is I think what the series um, on Channel 4 was trying to do, is all fine and well. But we all know that the demo was better than the fourth album, right? Of course we do. My friends, it's just a matter of taste. And that's what I was trying to sort of dig at um, in this week's Agitators Anonymous. Let me know in the comments or whatever your opinion. Are we wrong to judge the casual listeners? Um, are we wrong to piss on their parade? Are we, are we wrong to grump in the corner um, at the lowest common denominator music? Kinda, kinda not. That's the conclusion. My friends, over and out. Planet Satan. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.